our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word is 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 to 22. And you have your Bibles, which I trust are remain or will remain open to the reading where Eden uh, very finely did a fine job reading that challenging text for us. If you'd keep them there so you can follow along with us, we... Are, especially if you're visiting with us, I'll just say we have been in a very long study through the books, uh, all the, the the entire books of First and Second Samuel. We therefore are now entering in chapter 21, what is a new section of the books of First and Second Samuel this morning. For many months now, we've been following the narrative of Israel's King David. We've been with David at the heights as David ruled a united kingdom in righteousness. We've been with David in the lows as the consequences of his sin played out in rebellion and in violence and in exile. And chapter 20, which we looked at last week, was the end of that narrative in 2 Samuel. And what we saw there was that the king was restored, but despite that, All was not well. And our conclusion, if you were here last week, was that David's kingdom isn't the kingdom we're waiting for. Because David isn't the king we're waiting for. And I say that, I review just that summary this morning briefly, because as we turn the page now into the conclusion of Samuel, it's that overall picture that I think our author would leave with us. You you may recall, if you were here when we started this study of 1 Samuel over a year ago, that I made the point that in reality there is no division between 1 and 2 Samuel. It's just Samuel. And that's important to remember now at the end, because chapters 21 to 24 of 2 Samuel are not the conclusion of 2 Samuel only. They're the conclusion of all of it. 1st and 2nd Samuel together. And you have the Bible there. Just a quick glance at these final four chapters reveals that they're made up of various kinds of material. Right? In fact, there are six distinct sections in these four chapters, and there's an intentional structure to how those sections are arranged. So just glance there at chapter, beginning at chapter 21. You can see it. In chapter 21, as Eden read it, there are two sections. Verses 1 to 14 are the story of this national disaster, this famine that David addresses. Then verses 15 to 22 were very different. There was a list of four warriors who defeated four Philistine giants, it seems. And then you look ahead, and chapter 22 is the third section, and that's poetry. You see the way it's on the page. It's a, it's a psalm of David, essentially. And then in chapter 23, that sequence is reversed. Verses 1 through 7 of chapter 23 are another poem. Then verses 8 to the end of chapter 23 is another list of warriors, David's mighty men. And then chapter 24 is another story about another national disaster, this time a plague, and how David addresses that. 
So you see there's an artistic symmetry to these four chapters. We get a story, a list, a poem, and then followed by a poem, a list, and a story. This is very carefully arranged material. And it is intended, I think, as a kind of summary, not a summary of all the content of Samuel, though there are links made to earlier narratives. This is the concluding summary assessment of David's reign, if you will. And in the end, the picture we're left with isn't very far from where we were last week when we ended chapter 20. Samuel, the entirety of Samuel, isn't ultimately about David or David's kingdom. It's about God and God's kingdom. And what we get in chapters 21 to 24 is a perspective on the kingdom of God as that is now currently extant in the kingdom of David. And when you put it under that lens, what we see is that even as this summary will show us again that David was God's king in a way that Saul never had been, that ultimately the hope of David's kingdom isn't in David. He would be the greatest king Israel ever had, but he was far from perfect, as we've seen, which means that the hope of David's kingdom isn't in David. The hope of David's kingdom is in the Lord and in the Lord's promise. And David himself knew that. Now this morning, we're just going to deal with the first section of these concluding chapters, and that means verses 1 to 14 of chapter 22. Eden very kindly read the whole chapter. But I'm going to save verses 15 to 22 for when we get to that other warrior list in chapter 23. And then we'll deal with both of those together because they're making similar sorts of points. This morning, I just want to try and tackle verses 1 to 14, which is the first section in this epilogue of, of Samuel, as I've sketched it for you. And I, as you may already sense, this is a real challenge. One commentator suggests that just these 14 verses are one of the Bible's most difficult stories. Not, not that it seems difficult to see sort of the main idea of the narrative, right? It, it looks like King David here is addressing a national disaster. And just look at the endpoints of this, of this narrative. In verse 1, you read, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. At the end of verse 14, you read, God responded to the plea for the land. So that on the surface of things, it the point seems to be that David's an effective king, right? He determines the reasons for the famine. He addresses it. The Lord relents. The rain returns. The people of Israel have food again. It seems very positive. Except that what's troubling about this narrative is how David addresses the problem. And what then we're to make of the Lord's seeming approval of it by the end. And I, I want to say that I don't have a solution for everything in this text this morning. I have proposals, which I'll offer you carefully, but 
you won't leave feeling like everything's been resolved, I don't think. That's okay. But what I hope will happen is that even if we can't figure it all out, we will leave this morning celebrating in the end the good news of Jesus Christ. Only it's going to be a fair bit of work to get there. So hang in there, especially if you've not been with us in Samuel so far. Try to just track with me through the text. It is a short passage, but there's a lot to talk about. And I'm going to try and go as deep into it as I can. Here's the structure. We'll consider first the situation in verses 1 and 2. Spend a lot of time there. Then we'll look at the solution in verses 3 to 9. And then I'm going to suggest that there's a surprise in verses 10 to 14. So the situation, the solution, and the surprise. So you can follow where we are in those in that threefold way through these 14 verses. First comes the situation that you find in verses 1 and 2. And here's verse 1 again. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And the first thing to realize is that this is not following on the narrative of chapter 20. As I've already summarized by talking about how this book concludes. We don't know when this occurred in the reign of David. But it wasn't after chapter 20. The three-year famine isn't mentioned anywhere in, in the record of 2 Samuel chapter 5 to 20, which is the reign of David. We, we can assume it takes place sometime after chapter 9 in 2 Samuel, because that's where, if you remember, David had initially shown kindness to Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son Jonathan, as our author reminds us. David brought Mephibosheth to live in his court, you remember, in chapter 9. So when verse 7 of our chapter says David spared Mephibosheth because of the oath the Lord of the Lord that was between David and Jonathan, it seems like at least the events of chapter 9 are assumed there. So you could place it somewhere after chapter 9. But where, wherever it happens, the point is there's a crisis in the kingdom. And the harvests are failing, and people are starving. And what's David going to do about it? Well, David seems to do, he does the right thing as God's covenant king. He seeks the Lord. The text says for us, and David sought the face of the Lord. Now, that's that's a phrase that suggests seeking an audience with a ruler. You, This is the king of Israel who knows he needs to come before the king, you see don't know exactly what David prayed. The last, verse 14 of the passage, suggests he made some plea for the land that's suffering from this famine, as we would expect. Maybe David asks the Lord whether there was a reason for the famine, too. Because verse 1 continues, And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Okay. Uh, let's read verse 2 first to get the narrator's notes on that. Verse 2 says, So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. That incident is not narrated anywhere else in the books of First and Second Samuel. This is the first we've heard of this. 
the narrator makes plain for us what the problem is. Saul acted in a way that violated something Israel had sworn to do, which was to spare the Gibeonites. And in case you don't know who they are, the narrator fills it in by saying the Gibeonites are not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites, which means the Gibeonites were survivors from the indigenous Canaanite peoples who had been displaced when the Lord gave the promised land to Israel. The Gibeonites still lived in the land, but they weren't part of Israel. Well, how could that happen? Well, it happened because the Gibeonites were protected by an oath. Obviously, there's background here that we're supposed to know about. And in fact, you can know about it if you're willing to go all the way back to Joshua chapter 9 to find it. And do that, if you would. Turn backwards. I didn't note the page numbers, but before Samuel comes uh, Judges, and then before, well, Ruth, but then Judges, and then before Judges is the book of Joshua. So just turn backwards a bit, and you'll find Joshua, and go to Joshua chapter 9. (laughs) And look there at the opening of Joshua chapter 9, if you would. Where are we in Joshua chapter 9? Israel had had crossed the Jordan. They'd renewed the covenant. Jericho had fallen. The city of Ai had been defeated. And then here we are in verse 1 of Joshua chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon heard of this, verse 2, they gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But the Gibeonites didn't. Verse 3, But when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and to Ai, they on their part acted with cunning, it says. And they go to Joshua and Gilgal and they say in verse 6, We have come from a distant country, which they didn't. So now make a covenant with us. In other words, they're deceiving Joshua, right? Do you remember this story? They say we're from a different country. They plan the deception right down to the small details. They make sure they have old crumbly bread, right, that looks worn out. They bring worn out wineskins and ragged clothes and worn out sandals. Make sure so that it looks like they came a long way. It's all there in Joshua 9. Verse 14 then says, So the men, this is the men of Israel, took some of their provisions and did not ask counsel from the Lord. Just just stick a pin in that, okay? (laughs) Stick a pin in that. They did not ask counsel from the Lord, it says. Verse 15, And Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live. And the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And And then, of course, they discover the Gibeonites had fooled them and the people are upset with the leaders, but there's nothing for it. Verse 19, But all the leaders said to the congregation, we have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we will do to them. Let them live lest wrath be upon us because of the oath that we swore to them. Now, I know this is obvious, but whose wrath are the leaders of Israel afraid of? 
you have to see this to make sense of 2 Samuel 21. They're not afraid of the Gibeonites' wrath. It's the Lord's wrath they're afraid of. Because they'd made a covenant in the name of the Lord with these people. And I mean, this just seems so far removed from our world that maybe this just doesn't resonate. This, But this was no small thing. The language used there in Joshua is literally to cut a covenant. Right? The ESV says make a covenant. There's, there's more to it than just making an agreement, like you sign a piece of paper. According to the custom, Israel's leaders in swearing that oath mean that they'd ask the Lord to bring wrath upon them should they ever break their word. You cut a covenant because what you did was you cut an animal and you put its pieces opposite one another and those who were taking the covenant obligations would then themselves walk between the pieces of the animal that's been cut apart and to say, as this animal's cut in pieces, may we be cut up if we don't keep our oath, you see. Now, it's not clear that that happened every time a covenant was made, but that's the background of the language to cut a covenant. It's serious stuff. Joshua and the leaders knew what they'd done. The oath was sealed. The critical point was it was sworn by the Lord. You break that kind of oath, and what you're saying is that the Lord can't be depended on. The Lord's name guarantees nothing. It is the very definition of what it means to take the name of the Lord in vain. And now, you can go back to 2 Samuel 21, if you turned in your Bible to Joshua, and you can go back to 21, because now David finds out, you see, that that's what Saul did. David knew the seriousness of what that meant. Saul's zeal, it says, for the people of Israel and Judah led him to consume the Gibeonites. Well, that's what it says in verse 5 of our chapter there. When the Gibeonites say to David, Saul consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Or in other words, you see, Saul decided he'd go ahead and wage his own holy war. The goal was total eradication Only the problem was that Saul's zeal wasn't rooted in a desire to honor the Lord, you see. What Saul did brings dishonor on the name of the Lord because of the oath that had been made. The result then is exactly what Joshua and the leaders had said it would be. The wrath of the Lord is now upon Israel. And so here's a big part of the point of this first section of the Samuel conclusion. I think you're meant to see that unlike Saul, David was a king who sought to honor the name of the Lord. Saul broke covenants. David kept covenants. I mean, that's just part of the point. And it's precisely what the narrator wants us to see Specifically, when the narrator chooses to include verse 7 in this chapter. Look at, just jumping ahead a bit, but look at verse 7, because you see how David then is careful to spare Mephibosheth. Now, the narrator didn't have to tell us that, but he does, because I think this 
the narrator wants us to see how David isn't like Saul. David spared Mephibosheth. Why? Because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. And so we get it. This part we're not surprised by. David was the good king who cared about covenants. Saul wasn't, and Saul didn't. But then... seems to me that's not the whole point of 2 Samuel 21. It's certainly a key point that the narrator wants to make in this summary evaluation of King David, but I think there's more to it. Because it seems to me that there's something off (laughs) in the way that David's portrayed in this chapter. Clearly, David's trying to act as the covenant king here. He's dealing with the sin of Saul and its consequences. But I am going to suggest to you, though you will not find everybody you read on this text agreeing with this, but I'm going to suggest to you that as David deals with this, David missteps. Now, we just spent a ton of time on the situation there in verses 1 and 2 because it's like, what? going on to understand the dynamics here but now let's look more briefly at the solution in verses three to nine and i have the word solution in quotes in my notes here because i'm not sure this was supposed to be the solution to the problem let me just make the point again that we saw from joshua a moment ago what's the problem fundamentally here the problem fundamentally is that Israel's under the wrath of God, right? So I I suggest to you that the key moment at which David missteps is right away at the beginning of verse 3. Verse 2 says David called the Gibeonites to speak to them, but then watch where he goes with it in verse 3. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? Now, David's intentions are good, I suggest to you. The Gibeonites have a justified grievance against Israel. David desires an outcome that will have the Gibeonites blessing the people in the land of Israel. He's trying to restore the peace that Joshua had made with them. He knows that's what has to happen. Here's my question. Why isn't David first asking the Lord what he should do? Right? Now, see what you think about this. (laughs) It was the Lord who'd revealed the problem to David. David wouldn't have known this without the Lord telling him. Evidently. I think that's merciful on God's part to have done that. It, It seems to me that it perhaps indicates that the Lord didn't desire to remain wrathful against his people. So that when his covenant king now seeks his face, the Lord makes clear what's going on. But then David sets about to work out what needs to be done. How? By consulting the Gibeonites. Which, they're the victims, I get it. This is is obviously important. But consider his question again. What shall I do for you? David asks. 
And I know it's an, it's an argument a bit from narrative silence because the text doesn't explicitly make the point. But shouldn't that question have gone first to the Lord, whose name Saul had taken in vain, disgracing the God of Israel? I mean, again, there's no narrative comment like there is in Joshua, but I just find it interesting that David seems to fall into the same error that Joshua does vis-a-vis the Gibeonites. Remember, Joshua and his leaders did not ask counsel from the Lord, the text says. And neither, it seems, does David. In fact, I go further, David seems to think that the Gibeonites are the ones who get to decide what the solution is to this situation. And not just the solution, but how atonement can be made, right? How shall I make atonement, he asks them. And look at verse 4. The Gibeonites respond cautiously at first. Even while they're hinting at what they want, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us. Do you think maybe they expected David to suggest something like that? It's not a matter of silver or gold. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And I just wonder if they aren't sort of testing David here. See if David really means what he says, that they get to call the shots on this one. David seems to confirm that at the end of verse 4. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? Which in English sounds like David wants to know what it is that they want so he can evaluate what they're asking for. That's not the nuance of it. The Hebrew reads literally, whatever you say I will do for you. That's what it says. Meaning this is in effect a promise from David to do whatever they were asking. So again, here's my question. How is it that the Gibeonites, who aren't part of the people of Israel, are the ones who get to determine what constitutes atonement for Saul's actions in the sight of the Lord? Because that's precisely how the Gibeonites understood David's question. The Gibeonites tell David what they think will satisfy God. Because the same famine that's starving Israel is impacting them too, right? The issue is God's wrath in 2 Samuel 21, which is why they say in verse 6, look at verse 6, they say to the king, let seven of his sons, that is Saul's sons, be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul. You see, it's before the Lord they want to hang the seven sons of Saul. Why? I think it's because in the Gibeonites' eyes, That's the atonement they see as necessary to satisfy the Lord. Seven is just the symbolic number meaning completeness or wholeness. But has anyone thought to ask if this is in fact what the Lord wants to happen? David doesn't do that. Look then how succinctly the the narrator says it at the end of verse 6, and the king said... I will give them. Which he does. In verses 7 to 9, he takes two sons of Ritzpah, Saul's concubine, five sons of Merab, Saul's daughter. And verse 9 says, he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. Don't miss the final note the narrator wants us to have, I think, in verse 9. 
He says they were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of barley harvest, which the narrator points out because there was no harvest, or at least very little of one, because there's still a famine going on, right? But this is the time of the harvest, and these deaths are intended to fix that problem. That's the point. This is their attempt to try to solve the problem of the wrath of God in order to end the famine, and King David goes right along with it. Only as I read it, there's no indication that David's acquiescence to what the Gibeonites asked for was in some kind of act of obedience to a word from the Lord. In fact, I think it's exactly the opposite because here comes the surprise. Ready? What is the surprise? Or maybe by now it's not a surprise to you. (laughs) The surprise is that it doesn't work. Verse 10 does not say anything like, And the Lord looked on the slain sons of Saul and relented from the famine which he had sent against Israel. Doesn't say that. Right? I mean, if the narrative point here is that what David did was right, then we ought to be done. And it says, And David saved Israel from the famine caused by the sin of Saul. It never says that. Never says that. Instead, what we get is this wrenching scene in verse 10, which if you can possibly begin to allow your imaginations to dwell on the details of this, the verse 10, it would ought to make you recoil. The picture of a mother who guards and defends literally the rotting flesh of her own sons as their bodies just hang there. I mean, what, what's the narrator trying to do here? I, I'm with the commentators who suggest that this vigil that Rizpah is on goes on for months. In verse 10, Rizpah spreads the sackcloth for herself on the rock. Not clear whether that means that she was just putting the cloth down to lie on like a bed or if it was maybe some kind of shade for herself from the sun. I don't know. Either way, she's there, it says, from the beginning of harvest until the rain fell on them. Those are seasonal references. This this probably means that she's there from April until the time when the autumn rains would have been expected to come in October or November. Day and night. Day in, day out. Week in, week out. Here's my read. I think the point is that Rizpah is the one doing the honorable thing in this text. She puts herself through hell for those seven dead sons of Saul because she knows that what's happening here isn't right. Deuteronomy chapter 21 stipulates that the exposed body of an executed criminal has to be taken down and buried before the day's end. That's why Jesus is taken down from the cross. And I think that kind of insight gets us right to the point because it is that David's not doing things right here. This is what the Gibeonites wanted. 
in verse 6, the Gibeonites said, let seven of his sons be given so that we may hang them before the Lord. Now, they're not talking about the means of death there. They don't mean death by hanging. The word that's translated hang there is not a common verb. Some translations go with impale. If you have an NIV, I think it does that. The point is that the men would be put to death first and then be hung up or put up on stakes or something and exposed presumably to stay there before the Lord until the famine ends. And the point is the famine isn't lifted. And there's Rizpah, of all things, Saul's concubine, who's out there for months, and it's her horrific perseverance that finally gets David's attention. Verse 11, when David was told what Rizpah had done. Verse 12, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh Gilead, verse 13, and he brought them up from there, he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged. That's the seven sons of Saul that David has just handed over. Verse 14, and they buried the bones in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish his father, and they did all that the king commanded. And then watch this, this is the clincher. It was after that. God responded to the plea for the life. I think, boy, not a lot of people agree with me, but I think David realizes he'd been wrong. I think David's extraordinary gesture here, he goes to the men of Jabesh Gilead, that's some 50 miles northeast of Jerusalem. It's not like it's next door. He retrieves the bones of Saul and Jonathan. He brings them together with the seven dead sons of Saul. Now, I think this is an act of contrition on David's part because as I interpret this narrative, the famine hasn't ended yet, right? The famine that was the expression of God's wrath that was the consequence of Saul's breaking the covenant with the Gibeonites, that's still going on. And David honors Saul? Why do that? If it's Saul who got Israel into this mess in the first place. The best answer I can give you is I think David recognizes that whatever the solution should have been to the situation in verses 1 and 2 wasn't what had happened. I read this as an act of repentance on David's part. Which is maybe why it's only then that the Lord mercifully responds to David's plea for the land. Not because David did anything to merit that response. You see, quite the opposite. David acknowledged that what he'd done had been a grave mistake, is how I read this chapter. And the rains come. And the famine's over. And dear friends, where do we go with all of that? This is a hard chapter. What's this text saying to us? About David, about the Lord. Let me give you three 
I'm at the last page here in my notes, so don't panic, but let me give you three rapid-fire takeaways which I think now rest on all that interpretive work that I've just done. Three rapid-fire ones. Number one, let's not miss this point, that the consequences of sin are deadly serious. Right? I mean, and they often affect others. Part of the point of this chapter has to be that all of this was in some way a consequence of Saul's sin, which brought God's wrath The wrath of God against sins are reality. And it's complicated, and usually we're not given the kind of information that David gets here regarding the famine that Israel was experiencing. But Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You could say that the wrath of God against sin, including our own and, and, and the sin of others, that is the fundamental problem we all face. It was the same fundamental problem they faced in David's day. But that then leads me to number two. And I think it is that King David couldn't deal with the problem of the wrath of God. As one commentator puts it, David's attempt to deal with the consequences of Saul's sin horrifies us. Yes, it does. I think it'd be a mistake to read this chapter and conclude that the death of Saul's sons was God's requirement here. In fact, I think the narrative might be telling us exactly the opposite of that. God does relent in the end, but not because of something David did. If anything, it's despite what David had done. It was the mercy of God. Which is why I I now will end on number three. None of us can make atonement for our sin. Let alone for the sin of others. doesn't mean that David shouldn't have sought to do something for the Gibeonites. I'm not suggesting it was wrong for David to want to restore relations with the Gibeonites, restore the oath, all of that. But the atonement David seeks in horrific ways here wasn't his to make. Only Jesus is the king who can save us from the wrath of God. I just wonder if that's not something we ought to think about coming out of this chapter. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, that it is King Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. John writes in 1 John 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, John writes earlier in the letter, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now look, I don't know exactly what the Lord would have said had David asked him what needed to be done in response to Saul's sin. But what I think I do know is that it wasn't for David to make atonement to save his people from the wrath of God. That could only be the work of David's greater son. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.